The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockio Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Well, hello, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune with... Ellie Wharton. Hey, folks, we're glad that you joined us today. We've been having some great conversations off the air with our guest that's coming up, and we'll introduce him in a minute. But first, birthdays are special. Make the people around you feel loved. Call them, write them, and shower them with presents. I like the shower with presents part. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you did, I will say, see, let me tell you something. He's reading that, and he's smiling because... He forgot my birthday last Sunday. Oh, that's not good. But then he did send me a belated happy birthday. It's not good. And then I, I made him feel good by telling him that was okay because I celebrate all month long. I do too. So you right. didn't celebrate my birthday. Probably didn't know it. <laughs> you know, it's my birthday today. No. Yes, I'm 76 years old. Oh, my gosh. And, and you just heard that from Bob Dick, who's an artist, sculptor, <laughs> sure, sure. historian. Today is your birthday. We'll have, okay. Well, Serious. do we have some happy birthday music? Yeah. Oh, we'll have to cue some up. We're going to get some here. 918 this morning. Wow. <laughs> How many is... pounds an ounce is Bob? Six pound, eight ounces. Menorah Hospital, Kansas City. There we go. Mm-hmm. There we go. Wow. I don't think we've ever had anybody on on their birthday. We yeah. have never, and we yeah, will. Yeah. We will seriously have to sing "Happy Birthday" to him. Yeah. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy Thank birthday you. to you. Happy birthday, dear Bob. Happy birthday to. We can sing. We can sing. <laughs> and you know, I have a footnote as to the moonshot in 1969. Yes. May I tell my story? Absolutely. Um, I had a bicycle in Paris. This is in 1969. So I'm there ostensibly as a student, but I'm just screwing around. So I'm zipping through the streets in Paris, and I find I'm, I come around a corner, and there's a small little grocery store there that had crates packed, uh, stacked up probably about eight or nine crates. And on top of the crate was a television. And on this television was, you know, the French were all gathered around and I'm in the back of my bicycle watching this. And here was the moonshot. And, you know, the French turned around, they could kind of see that I was an American. And so they started to applaud me as an American. And uh, it was kind of an exciting moment. I remember you talked about that in your book. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it was a significant time. And as an American, you know, that was a time when Americans were not viewed as you know, real positively. But um, I was on a bicycle and looked harmless. <laughs> and so, right. uh, you know, they, uh, they applauded me. And I just felt, you know, I said, merci bien. And, uh, you know, I, I nodded and acknowledged them. And I took off on my bicycle. But I remember vividly. You know, the guys were going up in the, in the spaceship. Yeah, some of those things you remember about in July. Uh, that particular time. That's right, right. exactly. Nice. And it's amazing that it was sitting up on a crate. Yeah. You know, the TV was sitting on a crate. Well, in those days, you know, the French, this is 20, 25 years after the Nazis were in Paris. So they didn't have a lot of electricity. And it was a town still unsettled. And... Um, so they didn't have a lot of money, and there here was this little bitty TV on top of these, look like egg crates. The community TV thing. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. Yeah. Why That's not? exciting. That's an exciting memory. Yeah, it really was. It really was. So, so anyway, 
There you go. We we are talking to um, RH, aka Bob Dick. Can R- we call R-H you? Dick. Can we call you just RH? I don't care. <laughs> no, <laughs> just but call li- him. Huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're listening to Intune, which is a two-hour weekly broadcast, which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor. And justice. So Bob Dick is a native of Missouri. He's born in Kansas City, holds a bachelor's of science in education and a master's in American history from Central Missouri State University. Graduate work was completed in French history and economics at the University of Missouri, Columbia. He's done additional work at Harvard, Yale, Columbia of New York, and at the Sorbonne University in Paris, France. As an artist, he's been the recipient of numerous awards, has had several successful one-man exhibitions, co-authored the book An American Art Colony, The Art and Artist of St. Genevieve, Missouri, 1930 to 1940, which won the Missouri Governor's Award in 2005. He's been busy. He's, he's, Thank you very much. He's the guy I call the neo-Renaissance Neo man. Neo-Renaissance man. That's right. <laughs> and I know he laughed about that the other day when we were talking, but... Right. When you, when you talk to him and when you read his books, you know, he's an author, he's a sculptor, he's an artist, he's, he does all kinds of things. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have him on the show today, because he brings an interesting perspective of life, not only in talking to him, but in his art and in the history, because he has a degree in history, he understands things. He went to France for a while, and he brings that kind of perspective of culture into where we are today. So... Bob, welcome to In Tune. We're glad to You're have you on kind. today. You're very and, kind. And happy birthday again, by yeah, the way. Yes, and, and, and having a, a greater worldview than Kansas City is, is probably a good thing, huh? Well, as I told Arnold the other day in the studio, that uh, when I came back, I was 24 when I went to France, and I was 20, 25 when I came back. It was, uh, it was a shock because this country was coming apart uh, in 68, uh, 69. And uh, so when I came back, uh, you know, first of all, I had to decide whether I was going to come back or not. And because it was a time of a lot of ex- expatriates, uh, it was a time of Vietnam, it was a time of the uh, race riots in Detroit, Kansas City, L.A., and on and on and on. And so um, I had to decide uh, whether to uh, come back to this, this side of the, uh, the Atlantic. I did. I remember getting off of the airplane and looking around, and uh, it was it was a shock. Uh, I had to uh, I had to uh, sort of re you know when you think in another language for a while and you're you're in another culture. Uh, it's uh, and what was going on in this country during those days. Um, you had to reaccustom yourself to it. Literally, it took me months literally months, if not a year or so, to uh, kind of get back into the swing of thinking, what was going on here? Um, you know, Kent State and all that kind of stuff was in the future still, but uh, you know, I remember going back to Kansas City and Truce and Prospect uh, were, had tanks on them and uh, smoke was coming up, the National Guard was there, and I said, holy cow. Um, now, were you getting any of that news while you were in France? Uh, I tried not to. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, you know, at the very kiosk along the, the streets there, you had magazines and newspapers. Uh, this was the time that, uh, you know, Jacques Serban-Schuiler had written the book Le Lafitte Américain, which was the American challenge. And the French more than once asked, and that book essentially was, you know, 
what is America doing in Southeast Asia? Ho Chi Minh had, had gone to Paris. He had, you know, he had been to Paris. And so the, the French were very um, worried about what direction this country was going to take in the 60s and early 70s as far as um, its foreign policy. And uh, at the various restaurants, they could tell that I was an American, so I would, I would almost invariably be asked, you know, what, what is your State Department about? What's going on there? And uh, so I, I said, look, I'm not going to defend this um, because I was, I was really questioning my government at that time anyway. And um, so um, after a while, the French really took me under their wing. I felt very comfortable there. I was not fluent in French, but I, got, I could get around. Um, so it was an extraordinary time in my life. And uh, I can tell you some interesting stories about uh, the activity under bridges, uh, activity in restaurants, at the Sorbonne. Uh, the students were very political. The students were very um, opposed to uh, Charles de Gaulle and Madame de Gaulle. Um, as I told you the other day, Arnold, Madame de Gaulle was a member of the Moralist Party and in Paris, and she was going to clean Paris up. To give an example, Leal was the medieval market. It was a market of, you know, farm produce, cheeses and wines and things like that. But it also was a time when the brothels and the ladies of the night, they called them demi-mode, uh, they, they used the market to solicit business customers. And I used to fly through there on my bicycle. Well, it's like they liked organic. Now, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But she was going to shut it down, clean it up. The whole market? The whole market. Now, this goes back to the 14th century, 13th century. Throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Exactly. Right. And uh, so uh, uh, the students were opposed to that, as well as most of the Parisians. And uh, subsequently, as you may or may not know, Leal was closed down. And... Uh, Walmart moved in. Walmart <laughs> moved in. <laughs> so so uh, it was just a, it was a crazy time. What an improvement. Walmart. <laughs> That's what, Walmart. <laughs> Walmart. That's right, exactly. So it uh, was a crazy time. No, that's, and, and you describe that in your book, uh, Utrillo's Children. Utrillo's Children. Your, your memoir of Paris in 1969. We'll, we'll get into a little bit mm -hmm. of that. I had. Let's do it. You know, from our conversation when you grew up in Kansas City, because you grew up down the street from a very famous Missourian. Yep. Tom Benton. Thomas Hart Benton. Wow. Yeah. We know we've we've interviewed we've talked we interviewed about his him, grandson. his grandson, right. the artist. Right. Oh, my goodness, man, we were intrigued. Am I still I think about that one, the one that I told you that was great about the the uh, train wreck. Yes. Oh, yeah. And yes, and then the, the the horse. Yes, and then the the uh, souls going up to heaven. You right. had the right. the whites on this side, the blacks on this side at the funeral, right. but the souls were going up together, and they were helping each other mm -hmm. up. Yeah, the, that one. Anthony Benton Good. Yes. Did that one? Yes. That one was so fantastic. Yeah. And I'm glad that you know it because it really impacted me. Well, I we lived at 4404, <coughs> excuse me, Bellevue, and. <coughs> Benton lived on down the street, 
And uh, my father had a store on the plaza there. And so on these evening walks, when I, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I bump into him. And uh, he was a, a prickly old guy and uh, drank too much, uh, was uh, self-absorbed. He knew he was famous. Uh, <laughs> okay. He knew he had uh, uh, made, was making his mark. But the, as I said to you the other day, Arnold, uh, uh, as a Kansas Cityan, um, Kansas City did not treat uh, Tom Britton very well. And uh, it was only later uh, that, um, you know, New York and Boston and Philadelphia started to buy stuff that Kansas City scratched his head and said, oh, man, maybe we ever start respecting this guy. This must be a Missouri thing, you know, because we do tend to dispel those people that have become very famous yeah. in other places. Yeah. Then we go, oh. We talked about that, about artists that lived here, even in this community, in yeah. Webster Groves, who worked at the St. Louis School of Fine Arts at sure. Washington University. Yeah. How, you know, everybody from New York, Chicago, Cleveland would purchase paintings. They come like, here. Yeah, what's going on, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, now, he had to work for that, though. He he really wasn't accepted right away anyway. He, he didn't have a big head right away. Well, he had, you know, he's from Neosho, Missouri, right? I think. Right, right. And, uh, you know, early on he could draw, and he went to Paris and hung around, and, uh, you know, then he came back stateside and, and to New York. Um he was a socialist slash communist, and that ticked a lot of people off, you know, particularly New Yorkers. And uh, so uh, Benton had a chicka career, but, uh, you know, then he came back to Kansas City and started to work at the Kansas City Art Institute. And uh, that's where he did the great painting Persephone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some friends who worked with him. And so uh, Benton was an extraordinary guy, and, uh, and Rita Benton, uh, I don't know where you want to take this, but Rita Benton and Tom Benton were very good friends to uh, Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Right. Wow. And Pollock, of course, uh, he, he said that he had uh, an affair with Rita. Now, whether that is true or not, that's debatable. I'm not so sure Rita ever denied it, but uh, Pollock was uh, enamored of her. And uh, so... Uh, Pollock, uh, Pollock and Benton were close. Uh, uh, Benton supported him at times, gave him money. Pollock was a student of his, wasn't he, in yes, New York? Yes, yes. And also he came to Kansas City a couple of okay. times. So uh, anyway, um, that's a long story. So you went from Kansas City and then you moved to, your family moved to a, a rural area. My father dropped out. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father became a recluse. He... Um, he had been classically trained in the violin. Really? We think, I have photographs of it. He, we think he had a Strad, Stradivarius. Wow. Which was subsequently stolen. And Dad, by 1949, my father was division manager for Safeway Food Stores in Kansas City. Um, he just turned his back on the world. And uh, so it was my mother and me and Dad. His name was Frederick. And he took his money, uh, his savings, and bought a 60-acre farm in Cass County, Missouri. And he went broke four times. He became a hermit. Um, His violin was stolen out there. And uh, I grew up basically a little savage. 
I really couldn't hardly read or write by the time I was 15 years old. Um, I never went to school. Um, it was I, I, I lived uh, I lived a boyhood that was uh, just wild. There there were no fences. Uh, the the roads were not graveled or paved. I had horses, and so I could just get on a horse and just go and go and go. Um, fish, my dogs. I hunted. Um, it was an extraordinary time. The flyways uh, out of Canada for the ducks and the geese were coming out of I went over our farm, and at night during the fall, you know, I I would literally hunt for food, mm. and uh, it was that primitive. And by nineteen, I'd say nineteen sixty-five, uh, those flyways had changed. Um, Life electricity came out there, running water, the whole bit. And uh, so my life subsequently changed and changed radically. So you were just kind of like a regular Huck Finn, weren't you? I, I couldn't stay in school. I hated it. Um, as far as the art was concerned, that's what I did to entertain myself because there was no kids around me. So I would carve animals in soap. We made soap. I would uh, use pond clay to make figures and faces and things like that. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a shed there on the farm that the cows and chickens and pigs and snakes were coming in there. And I, I'd have my pond clay and I would just uh, make them. And uh, I built myself a little museum and things like that. Most of the, and then it took about 24 to 48 hours for all the pond clay to dry out and crack up and disappear. And so that's kind of where my art took Took root is uh, it was a way for me to kind of keep my sanity, and they were they were my little friends, uh, the ducks, the geese, the, the cows, the horses, the dogs, uh, the snakes, the snakes. Um, so I had an extraordinary, extraordinary boyhood, and by the time I was eighteen or nineteen years old, I it was disappearing, and I knew, and my father. My mother had saved up some money, um, and they said, you know, do you want to go to college? And I, I, you know, I had no skills. I had no academic skills. I I literally couldn't read almost. And I said, well, you know, let's let's see about this. So I had a teacher in high school. His name was Dale Schatz, and he lit my fire. And what I've had to do essentially most of my life is to catch up. Um, I, had to, I had to teach myself how to read, basically. I had to teach myself how to write. I had to understand the academic world, if that's where I was going. And um, I did it. And uh, I'm still doing it. And I'm 76 years old, and I'm still catching up. And I think that's one of the reasons why I write books and I do... You know, I sculpt and things like that is to prove to myself that I've, I can do this stuff because there was a time when I, I couldn't. Now, you, you so, developed that, uh, continued to develop the art skill at Warrensburg. Right. Oh, Did yeah. you take art classes there? Or? No, no. I've always stayed out of art school. Um, what I did is I went to working artist studios. Uh, subsequently, and years later, I would go to Santa Fe in New York, and I would just simply get on the phone and call up an artist or call up an illustrator or a sculptor. I'm in town. Could you give me some time? I want to learn. 
And that continued to be an interest for you, though. Oh yeah, yeah. And then I, I you know, I, I, you know, I had some people who gave me time, and um, I started making a little money. Um, I had a guy who was in who knew my father in his business life. Um, you have time for this? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to go to a break here in about okay. 90 seconds, so we'll okay. probably come back after the break. Okay. But you know, Ellie, what, what's interesting about the story is that he said, um, I remember this teacher lit my fire. That's mm-hmm. right. That stood out with me, and, too. And you find, and he named him. And you didn't name the subject. You named the person. Because it doesn't matter what the subject is. It's all about the interpersonal relationship and that reaching out and that connection right. that teachers and students and students and teachers can have that Amazing. keeps them going. I can name Roger Warner, who is my high school band director. I'm sure you can name. Yes, Mrs. Kirkpatrick. She was the one that actually. Your first grade teacher? No, she was actually my fourth grade teacher. But she was the one that continued to urge me to get into broadcasting. So see, folks, there's always somebody, and I bet you can think back as you're listening to this, some teacher who lit your fire, who engaged you. You may not remember what they taught, but you remember them and you remember their character and how they encouraged you and pushed you and were your cheerleader along the way. That's right, because, you know, back then we never really knew adults' first name, (laughs) you know. She was always Mrs. Kirkpatrick. But when I got older, I made it a point to find out what was her name. You know, and it was Hortense. Well, the name that we're talking to is Bob Dick, and we're going to continue our interview with him. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM. You're listening to In Tune with Arnold Stricker and Ellie Wharton, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking to Bob Dick, who's an artist, sculptor, author, and neo Renaissance Neo-... kind of guy whose birthday is today. <laughs> is, I mean, come on now. How you much know, more can we get? With we, this? You know, we couldn't ask for a better uh, icing on the cake, literally. Uh, that is very true. And and our Facebook friends, I hope they got a real good listen behind the scenes because we were having a great conversation oh, about Bob's lifestyle. And I tell you, it's one of those, it's a jaw dropper. If I'm you haven't you. been listening to this first half hour, you need to stay down. He's, <laughs> he's invited for the whole two hour show here. So oh, we're just goodness. starting to unpeel this onion of, oh. of Bob Dick here on his birthday. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking before the break, how you would go to, when you were traveling, you would stop in a city or a town and you would visit an artist and ask them if, if you could, talk to them. Elaborate on that because you have actually been tutored by some very... Some of the greats. Heavies. Some of the greats. Um, Well, there's a lot of stories here, but I think the the one that I would like to uh, articulate a little bit is how I met the great illustrator and portrait painter Bettina Steinke. Steinke was from Maine and had received her education in New York. And... uh, was a friend of Norman Rockwell and some of the great illustrators of the 1920s, 1930s. And um, subsequently, she married this guy who was a photographer for Time Life magazine. They moved to Santa Fe, had a um, hacienda on the Canyon Road. Um, I'm sure a lot of your audience knows where Canyon Road yep. is. That's a great place, great I tell place. you. Oh, It jumps. It jumps. The place. They, so anyway, I'm... I'm uh, in a studio here in Kirkwood, and I had labored over a, a portrait. And my studio mate said, you know, he, he was looking at an, uh, an artist magazine. He says, look at this gal right here. This is, 
look at her stuff, look at her work. And I said, holy cow, and she was amazing. So I said, well, I'm gonna go see her. So I drove out to, to Santa Fe, and one thing led to another, and um, I took my portrait and knocked on her studio door, made it, you know, she, you had to make an appointment, actually. So um, she said, well, come back tomorrow about 10 o'clock. So I did, and I had my portrait, and I was ready for her to tell me how much of a genius I was. And she said, uh, well, let me see what you've got here. And she said, well, let, let's go into my studio, and we'll put this under natural light. And she looked at it, you know, she turned it over and held it up. And she said, Bob, you've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and I'm stunned. I'm, I'm, I, you know, and I, I was so taken back because I was getting ready to be lauded and complimented. And she said, um, she says, if you are interested, um, I'll take you under my wing. And I said, well, why would you ever do that? Because she said, I think you're willing to work. And that was the hook. Mm. And I have to tell you that when I left her studio that day, I had to go and sit on a sidewalk with a cold beer. And I was so shattered by what this woman had said about my work. But next day, I went back. And for young artists, this is a, this is a sort of a lesson. I went back, knocked on the door, and she looked at me and she said, "Anna, I didn't think you'd come back." And that started about a twenty-year relationship. Wow. And I sat at her knee. I took her criticisms, and her criticisms laid me out. I received a hundred thousand dollar art instructional with her over those years that I'll never, never forget. When she passed away in 1999, I wept like a child. And I have photographs of her, and she went blind. Can you believe it? The gods took her sight. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I really have thought about her over and over again. Codner Galleries in 2004, uh, yeah, 2014, gave me a retrospective here in St. Louis. And I dedicated that retrospective to Bettina Steinke. And um, with that dedication, uh, it caused me to reflect and to go back and to go back to those times on Canyon Road when I was a younger man. And uh, all of her notes and letters I still got. Um, I, I, I had a bunch of her drawings. I have donated those to the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. Um, she was an extraordinary person, and that's an example of the kind of people that I've had in my life. I mean, here's this old country boy um, who has subsequently throughout his whole life has bumped into people who have helped me out. And uh, as I reflect about it, I, I'm, I'm not sure why it's happened, but it's happened. And um, I've taken advantage of it uh, because when you come from nothing, uh, and you have something, you, you are forced to realize how did you get here? And uh, this is what I've been doing the last three or four years. A quick question, why didn't yeah. you leave? Why did you, after you sat down on the curb, had your beer, you were, my words, 
you were devastated, like you said. Oh, I was devastated. And, and, and then you went back. And she didn't think you were coming back because right. was her criticism that harsh? Or why oh. did you turn around? Because you had come all this way to get yeah. her insights. Yeah. So why should you leave? I'm, I'm, I just kind of want to know a little bit more about that. Why didn't I leave? Yes. Um, I, I was determined... If there's anything called the art spirit or that sort of mystical thing within your gut that f- takes you to the easel or to the drawing pad, I thought I had it, but I just, I had no instruction. I didn't know anything. She knew how to mix colors. She knew how to draw. She had been trained at the Phoenix Art School in New York City. She had been with Norman Rockwell. She had been with Tom Lovell. Now, for those of you out there in Radioland, if you know anything about American illustration, these are the big guys in American illustration. I went to the top. I was willing to fail. I was willing to get my butt kicked, and I got it kicked. And that's what... Bettina was tough leather. She was an old Maine girl, and she was... um, if, If I hadn't gone back... Uh, she wouldn't give me the time of day. Right. But I went back, and I have all of our letters. I bought some of her art later on, and I made a little money. Um, and she's one of the most outstanding women in my life. Now, how much of your background, though, growing up, led you, not only led you there, but said, I'm not I'm not going to let this stop me. I'm going to keep well, going. Because you, from what you described in the first half hour, it's like, you're, you're open to continuing the process of growing and being exposed to what yeah. she was going to be able to give you. Well, you know, my dad, my dad, we had a chicken farm. That's one of the, you know, he failed at hogs. He failed at dairy. He failed at cattle. But we started, he found out that he could raise chickens and sell eggs to stores in Kansas City. And that's where the money came from to send me to school. And I... I saw what it was to work, and the and keep in mind that he was a violinist, but his hands disappeared, and you know he got arthritis, he could no longer, and the violin was stolen. So I had I had some exposure to to fine thought, but um, I I knew that if I was going to to do anything in life, I I had to just stick with it. I I, I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't fail. So I was willing, as I said, to have my butt kicked. And uh, I met some, uh, some incredible, inc- Bob McAfee uh, Scriver in Browning, Montana, member of the Cowboy Arts, member of the National Academy of Art. He, he took me under and showed me how to do bronze work. This is in Browning, Montana. Um, so I was just determined to go to those people who I felt could help me out. And I did. You know, and they took you under your... They, they must have seen something saw, in you. I, you know the thing of it is? They, they could sense, I think, on my, on my reflection here, that this kid will work. And that's really the key. That's the key. Yeah, if you've got someone who is willing to work, right. and obviously you put your pride and your ego aside, oh, obviously. That was tough. You know, sure that's because tough. Because we're male, you know, and males are grown up into sort of this male culture, and we don't we don't like to admit weakness, and, you know, we're the, we're the iron mics. And 
So I just set that aside, and boy, that was not easy. Because I had been an athlete in high school, state level, and things like that, and discus and shot put. But uh, I can tell you, it was tough. You know, looking at looking at the little the months and the years I spent trying to educate myself and learn how to read and write and that kind of thing, when I went into the art world and saw the level that I wanted to go to, I could see the work involved. For example, I've had students from Wash U come to my shop and they'll say, well, I'm going to do what you do. And I'll tell them, well, you can. Now, the first 10 years are tough. And that drops their jaw. <laughs> they say, what? I says, well, do you, you think this is easy? Um, you know, you've got to know your colors, your papers. You've got to know how to mix. You've got to know your uh, your brushes. Uh, it, all of this is strenuous work. It's tough. Uh, you just don't sit down and, and put something decent together. You know, you look into a face and you see all kinds of colors. Well, how do you mix those colors? How do you know what's underneath the skin? Have you ever flailed a head? Have you done any anatomical work? And they just kind of look at me. I said, well, you know, yeah, the first 10 years is going to be tough for you. And they're sitting there with a $200,000 education from Wash U, and they hadn't done any of that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to read from something that the Mercantile Library has said that you readily acknowledge the influence of St. Louis artists right. who inspire you, including Oscar Burninghouse, Charles M. Russell. Mm -hmm. But your landscapes, whether of the Midwest or Southwest, are imbued with a fiery color that's uniquely yours and reflects your passion for this subject. Yeah. Well, I was a farm kid. And uh, I get off the school bus when I went to school and, you know, grabbed my 22 rifle, my dog, and my horse, and off I went. And I would be out till midnight. And I'm just wandering around there because there were no fences. And, uh, you know, all that time is now gone. And it's all subdivisions. But at that time, uh, it was unfettered freedom for, for a little kid. Till midnight, unfettered. though. What were you doing out there till midnight? I would pack a sandwich. I had saddlebags, pack a sandwich. Uh, you know, I'd make a fire. Uh, I'd eat, shoot a rabbit. This is going to sound strange to your urban audience, but I'd shoot a rabbit or a squirrel, skin it, uh, eat it. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Daniel Boone. <laughs> or, you know, there were ponds and lakes. What's well, a man, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I would fish. You know, we had catfish, bass, crappie. Um, you know, Mother Nature will take care of you if you allow her to do that. And if you know how to do and it. And if you know how to do that. Now, urban man has kind of gotten away from that, but... Uh, and that's that amazing. You year. say now there's a subdivision there. Where it's all gone. Oh my goodness, that it's must be so disappointing. And I've never gone back because um, I don't want to be that depressed. I've never gone back. But I've had a boyhood friend. She called me up here about a year or so ago, and she said, "You know that old house, and it's all gone, Robbie. All gone." And I said, "Oh gosh." Now, when you went to see out to uh, New Mexico, yeah. this was after you came back from Paris. This is right. after, you know, you, you've been working. But then you, you obviously, you were married. You were having children. You needed some income to great come wife. in besides selling the art. <laughs> A great understanding wife. And, 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 and you had this history degree and this yeah. education degree. What did you do then? Well, uh, when I came back from Paris, I was broke. 
Um, that usually happens. And you were going to have you were having a child on the way. I had a, oh my I had goodness! A kid. I, my my daughter was my oldest daughter was getting born. So ostensibly, I had gone to Paris to work on a PhD. So all the people back stateside said, "Well, how, I guess you've done a lot of work <laughs> on, your, on your doctorate, you know." And I had I had intro letters. Uh, to various people in Paris that were going to help me, and I was going to do a, a dissertation on the Marquis de Lafayette. And uh, so I came back stateside, uh, and none of that done. But you you had a different kind of doctoral research that you did. Yeah, I, I, I hit the streets. Um, so that's, and I would draw little pictures of the bridges and of people, of models, um, and I would I would sell those to survive. And so my room was costing me five hours a week. And As your bicycle was too. And my, my, <laughs> my bike was costing me a couple bucks a week. Well, I could, I could sell a little uh, picture of a bridge, something like that, to American tourists for $10. So I'm set. But, you know, Camelot had to come to a close, and I had to, I came back stateside, and. Uh, I recognize that. Yeah. That's in Scott Kerr's. Was. Oh, it was. It was. Well, it must have been just it's probably over at the mercantile now. It's it's at the mercantile. The, really? Yeah. Uh, I recognize this. Yeah, that's uh, Daniel Boone. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. This is a, one of those pieces that I always said if I had enough money, yeah. I would own it. <laughs> Never have had enough money. Yeah. I'm glad it's in a good place. It is in a good place. He has a whole a little bunch of them. bronze display at the mercantile. I'll do a little commercial for you here. Thank you. Commemorating the completion of the Artist History of Missouri series and exhibition, which is at the St. Louis Mercantile Library, Bob has uh, done a Missouri history in bronze. Right. These are the sculptures that are on display. Bear Claw Man of Missouri Nations, Sacagawea, or Bird Woman's Dream, uh, Santo Domingo Dancer, Frontiersman Daniel Boone, which Ellie noticed, Captain William T. Anderson, Into the Unknown Pony Express, I Am Africa, Josephine Baker, right. In the Shadow of Death, Jesse James, Black Hawk, Charles M. Russell, Thomas Peglake Smith, James Pearson Beckworth, Blue Horse, and Death of a Gunfighter. And these are all on permanent display. They bought them, yeah. At the Mercantile yeah. uh uh, St. Louis Mercantile Library right. over at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. My goodness, they've been very good to me. Very good. No, so, no, very, very good. <laughs> oh gosh, I can't. Tell so you. we just don't have a a general artist who lives in Kirkwood, who grew up in Kansas City area, who went to Paris, <laughs> whose birthday happens to be today. We have we have somebody who has a unique background in understanding the art world. I want to read something else here yeah, before we get going so you can, before you, you tell us. want to be my agent? <laughs> I can do that. Man, I tell I, you. I can do that. See, now I'm actually crying that I didn't buy that piece because then I could have bought that piece. I could have then resold that piece to the Mercantile Library. There you go. Yes. Well, and John Hoover is the director of the Mercantile Library, and he's been very, very good to me. Very, very good to you. Oh, boy, has he. I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple things here, Bob. This is from your website. I respond to my subject, letting it dictate how I will make art of it. And you admit that it's getting harder to do. And then another statement, this is from Scott Kerr, where he says that you're at home in a number of different styles, including Impressionism, Abstract, 
abstractionism, and realism. Some collectors call you a folk artist, others an unrepentant artist renegade <laughs> with little regard for formality or style. But one disputed uh, fact, undisputed fact, you're obsessed with interpreting what you see and what you feel, and you always seem driven to refashion the world. Your art is literally life energy made visible. Hmm. And, and the thing about That's Scott, if well. people aren't familiar with Scott and the McCann, um, um Gallery here in Webster, he doesn't just gravitate towards anyone. I mean, his work that he displays is so incredible. Like yeah. I said, I recognized that one piece immediately because he was like right there as you walked in the door, mm -hmm. you know. And then um, with the young artist that he has that he's really kind of taken under his wing now, Roland Burroughs. Right. Again, it's like when I show people this man's he work. Can draw. Oh my gosh, yeah. they just, they're just in awe. And then when you talk to this young man, he can hardly say two words. He makes me think about you and you know what you were doing. And here's this guy up in North County, like he's got like a whole apartment full of, you know, masterpieces. What should I do with them? <laughs> you know? Well, it's, it's a crapshoot, I can tell you. Well, I've been in the business for 50 years. And, it's, and you it's have easy. to make money. You have to yeah. support your family. Yeah. And you did that how? Well, Besides I, selling the art. I was a teacher. And had a phenomenal career in the classroom, uh, both at the collegiate level and at the high school level. And uh, I, there may be a couple of my students out in the uh, radio audience here, but I was at Pattonville Senior High School for uh, the better part of 17, 18 years. And uh, I taught the AP courses and some of the courses that were not advanced placement. I had fantastic students. Uh, some of them I still know. Uh, they communicate with me. Um, so it was, it was an incredible time in my life. I, uh, that's how I kind of made money. In the summers, you know, all through the winter, I would do my work and have shows and try to make a buck. And that's when you would travel like to Taos? Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Okay. But okay. I would also, you know, spring break, it was in April, March, April, where I would disappear. My wife, who's an incredible woman, um, a very self-contained woman, uh, has raised our three children. And... Uh, I can't say enough about her because she allowed, she allowed me to happen, and um, that's not easy. Because you know you. Well, uh, an artist, uh, an artist wants the experience, and some of these experiences are not always positive, and uh, you know we seek it out uh, because that's a part of the art. That's part of the part of the gut. And you've got to have people around you who understand and will let that happen. If they won't, then you can't have them in your circle. It's just pure. It's as simple as that. And, and, and reading the book when you were in Paris, this yeah. this statement here from uh, your website, you respond to the subject, letting it dictate how you will make art of it, right. and how you describe when you went underneath bridges and there was. Music and oh, yeah. there was right. there was a revelry and I'll I'll just use that term there was revelry right and things were in a different uh, understanding of what life was going on for a variety of people a different group of people and just sitting down with the woman on the bench and laying down with the oh, woman yeah. on the bench and how people Renee were Mannheim yes of the Jewess um, whose family had all been gassed. And Renee, um, I got to know her a little bit, uh, which is in the book. Yes. And Renee at one time had been at the top of the world. A lot of money, a lot of wealth, 
prestige, Parisian prestige, which is different. Uh, Renee had been beautiful. She showed me pictures of herself when she was 16, 17 years old. And, um, you know, I did a painting of Renee. And uh, so, uh, well, that's a long story. Those all play into how you're how you then approach a subject and how you want to, whether right. what medium you want to use, what kind of colors right. I, you I, want I, to I did, use. I did several sketches, uh, painting sketches, but ultimately I did a, an oil painting of Rene uh, on that bench, mm. wrapped up in sort of a, uh, a blanket. Mm -hmm. um, that's where she lived. And that's where she relieved herself. That's where she ate. Um, and, you know, here I was, 24 years old, um, and I would look at her, and she had these old pictures of herself, and I'm saying, holy cow. Uh, I said, is this you at 16, 17 in a, in a palace on the right bank? And money around her, you can just tell it, fine art. Um, she says, that's me. Um, C'est moi. I thought it was very interesting that when she- Unbelievable. When she revealed to you that her family had been gassed, right. that that was the last time you saw her. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened to her, uh, whether she, um, you know, sometimes in my life, I th when people divulge, they begin to feel naked, and maybe she began to feel like you know too much. Too vulnerable. Too vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Good word, Arnold. And um, I, I don't know what, she dissolved. She went away. I don't know what happened to her. You speak of several other uh, individuals that you befriended, uh, whether it was eating breakfast at the uh, hotel. La Clunet. Right. <laughs> or, or whether it was uh, walking around Paris or riding around Paris on the bicycle that you had with the big fat tires. And, right. Uh, right. You know, very, very interesting book, folks. You, you, this isn't it. I'm like intrigued as just looking through the book here. It's so much. There's, It's just rich. There's... there's one of the prostitutes. <laughs> Is that how she walked around the market? <laughs> What's very interesting, he, he befriended prostitutes, was not interested in their trade except for painting. Them. Well, a lot of right. the, the nudes, I right. would imagine, would have been women that were making money in various ways. And were very comfortable with Bob, that it was not a sexual right. thing. It was, yeah. it was exactly. an art thing. Um, and it was a respect. It was a respect, and uh, oh, this is Susan Baldwin. Well, well, we'll come back because uh, we've got to take a break. Okay. I know it's like every page here. Every page. Look hey, at that. is that you? Stay tuned to our page. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of wow. Tune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockio Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We're having a great time. Just not a good time. We're having a great time with Bob Dick here. What do you think, Ellie? I'm so impressed with him. It's just a, every <laughs> sentence that comes out of his mouth is just a, just another level of wealth. It's not just about him being an artist, a sculptor, a painter, but this life experience that he has had is one in itself 
that I'm sure has compiled itself into who you are today as that artist, writer, painter. Which is what, yes, which is what we had kind of talked about a little bit off the air, that all of these experiences, I'm sure, generate passion, energy, compassion that goes into your artwork as you're, as you're painting yeah. or sculpting yeah. or writing. Well, you know, the artist is after the experience, and uh, whether they're positive or negative, well, we we go after it, and uh, I've had my share. <laughs> and it and it does lead to that which you know makes you who you are. When we were in the other break, and you were talking about Taos and being in Taos, and I've been in, ta- in Taos, and it's just yeah. such a wonderfully rustic kind of town. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got the modernization of it, you know, being a ski town, but it really is a very, still very Wild West kind of looking town. And then you were saying you were there where there were blanketed Indians walking around. Right. I mean, that right. I can't even hardly imagine being someplace in that type yeah. of an environment. And you're not that old. No, no, I'm, I'm 76. And, today. Uh, today. But I remember vividly as a 12-year-old, my first, my mother took me there. Um, you know, there were ponies and these blanket Indians were on these ponies and there were no paved streets. And uh, I got to know these Indians. I, you know, I used to make my moccasins and tan hides and things like that. And here was this little white kid and they kind of liked that. And uh, so I was invited ultimately to get into the tribe. And... Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was Sac Fox Indian. Wow. And so when they found that out, they kind of liked that. And uh, I got to be very good friends with the Romero family. Frank Romero, if he hadn't been a drunk, he would have been the uh, governor of the Pueblo. But Frank and I became very good friends. I lived at the Pueblo, ate the hot chili, <laughs> drank their liquor. And... Uh, we went up into the mountains, the Sangre de Cristal Mountains, which is in back of the Pueblo. That's right. I've yeah. been up there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Nixon, President Nixon, gave Blue Lake, a very mystical place, back to the Indians. Uh, before he came along, um, you know, white people were going up there and trout fishing, and it was just an incredible insult mm. uh, to, the, uh, to the natives there. But uh, I got up there, and, uh, you know, the Indians think they're going to get all this back. Yep. The old ones, the old ones, uh, you know, a lot of those old ones. <laughs> Ellie's face. Yeah. Lot, you saw it on Facebook. I know. Yeah. First. <laughs> you know, they've been out there a thousand years. It has, that area is so incredible because as yeah. you're driving all through New Mexico, right. you just go from one Pueblo to the next, right. to the next, to the next. And unfortunately, they have been so tainted because every one of them has a casino. Mm. And that has been the, like the big draw, why people come to that particular um, Pueblo because of that casino, uh, and that's where everybody works, and you know, and right. it's like, oh my gosh, it's changed so much. It has changed. Uh, but yes. the old ones, the old ones used to tell me, you know, uh, over the campfire, we're going to get this back. And I says, well, so when's that going to happen? And they have a different view of time, right? And they said it will happen in that big tribal meeting in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. I've had some times with them. I've had some times with them. Um, I kept my mouth shut, and I, I just, uh, they called me Paint Man, and I would sit just around the campfires and just listen. You get a lot of names. You were called Paint Man there. You're called Toulouse, yeah, Toulouse. in Paris. <laughs> Toulouse or Toulouse? The, lady, the, Toulouse. Ladies, called me, the ladies called me Toulouse. Toulouse. <laughs> 
tulips, right? And that is amazing, you know, because you have had this wide range of experiences in your lifetime that most of us, we maybe have had one or two, but you have had all of them, you know, when we go back <laughs> to like go from Kansas City to this little bitty country town to the snakes, the dogs, the, the raccoons, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, the horse and the dog and that yeah, kind of stuff, right. you know, to now, you know, working on your PhD in Paris, going to Taos with the blanketed Indian. I mean, come on, who, who's done all of that in their life? I don't know. I don't know. I, Bob has. I, yeah. I, I wonder how it all happened, to tell you the truth. And and not only that, fabulous books. I mean, your books are as artistic as your artwork. Thanks. That's the thing. You well, know. Let's, let's say the name of that one. This one is Utrillo's Children, a Memoir of Paris in 1969. This is a fabulously produced book. I just want our audience to know that. Um, just looking through it, you will just be engaged immediately. <laughs> I was reading that story about um, the one, I guess, on Under the Bridge, Your First Day in Paris. And the last day was about this fight. (laughs) Right. You know, it's just like, how could you be in Paris one day? You know, it's insights (laughs) into somebody who is like, yeah, the things, what happened on that trip, you know, whatever happens in Paris stays in Paris. Well, this is whatever happened in Paris is right here in the book. Right, becomes a book. Yeah. Okay. You get to know Bob by reading the book. Yes, you do. And you realize, too, that Bob never seemed to shy away from danger. No. Danger, Will Robinson. He was right there in it. Yeah, when you look back, uh, you really scratch your head and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, because some of these characters under those bridges back in those days were, were not legal. Uh, there was a lot of illegal stuff going on, and you know, the tourists and the, the civil world was up here on the streets. And we were, we were down here on the, by the Seine River, and... Uh, Oh, boy. You're doing your Ph.D. research. Yeah. <laughs> Ph.D. in life. Or not. So tell folks who Utrillo is. Well, Utrillo, uh, Maurice Utrillo, and he's big time now. Uh, his artwork is in the six and seven figures. Um, he was the illegitimate son of uh, Susan Valdon. And Susan was the, she was incredibly beautiful, and there's a picture of her in there. Um, Susan was the model uh, and lover of Georges Braque, of uh, Pablo Picasso, uh, of a number of the major artists um, around 1910, 1920. And she simply didn't know who the father was of Maurice. He became uh, an unsettled young guy and uh, lived on the streets, became an alcoholic, uh, was, was a lost soul. And hence, I think that's the reason why I named the book Utrillo's Children, because there were a lot of expatriates in the late 1960s and early 70s in Paris, and so we kind of felt that we were all children of uh, Maurice Utrillo. Um, the picture on the front of the book of Utrillo, I got out of Getty, the Getty Images. Um, darn thing cost me $1,000, but I thought that photograph um, is absolutely, it's him. It's him, right. It, is, I, I, it really you know, is. He's dissipated. He's lived too much. His face is lined. Uh, he's smoking the cigarette. Um, he His was, hands are grungy. His he, fingers are grimy was, looking. Yeah, they would find him in the gutter. They would drag him out of the gutter of the police, take him to the jail. And then out of the jail, he would come and they would take him over to Susan's house. Uh, she was living with some artist, you know, and she'd dry him out for a week or two. Um, 
So it was La Bohème. It was it was Montmartre uh, at its height. Um, you know the cafes, the cafe world. Um, it was the time when uh, Josephine Baker and many American blacks went to the Montmartre uh, because they were racially. Uh, I didn't care who you were. If you could play a clarinet, if you could act, if you were in, that was Montmartre. Montmartre was the place where um, Josephine Baker and she she became absolutely the toast of Europe. When I did the sculpture of Josephine Baker, it was the toughest one I ever did. Hmm. She did not want me to do it. Really? And uh, this gets a little mystical, but I'll tell you the story. Um, I went to the Black Rep, and they were very cordial to me there, and I sat in the audience while they had some dancers. I sketched. I met some of the actors and dancers. A couple of them came to my studio, and I told them, here's what I want to do. This is, I, I can't figure out how I want to do Josephine Baker. This was going to be a bronze. Was, I don't think there's a bronze statue of Baker um, around. And they sympathized with me, and yet when I sat in my studio with my clay, and I couldn't get it just wasn't happening. I went to Paris. I chased her to Paris. Now, she's long dead, but I kind of felt that I felt this presence. And um, finally, I'm in Montmartre. I go to the Museum of Montmartre. Um, I'm wandering around the streets of Montmartre at night, and I'm talking to myself, and I'm talking to her. <laughs> you know? And I'm saying, I want to do this statue of you, dear. Uh, is this going to happen? And... You know, it was like she was sitting on my shoulder. So nothing was happening in Paris. I, ha I had no art materials there at that time. So I came back stateside. I came back to Kirkwood. I'm in my shop, and I'm sitting there, and finally I, I say to her, and she's like on my shoulder, you know, I said, do you want this to happen or not? Pure and simple. I can't get this done without your help. And after that confrontation, which is me with this spirit, it happened. Now, make of that what you will, but uh, I did a couple of drawings. I, I bought my clay, and it was just like, okay, you're all right, Bobby. <laughs> now, when did you complete that? About two years ago. Oh, my. About two years ago, yeah. So All this time. Yeah, I mean, I worked on her. Do you remember the show down at the museum on uh, Senefo? Yes. I yes. went to that show probably a half a dozen times. Why was I there? I was there to get the vibe of the African artists on their statuary. And I told Baker, I says, okay, today I'm back here. Here we are. And I'd look at the carvings. I'd look at the drawings. A lot of wood, a lot of wood uh, material. And um, uh, when I finally, all, all of this experience then came out in that uh, statue. The statue is like a bow. Um, she is, she's uh, like an arrow being drawn in a bow. And she has a, she has a head, yeah, there it is in the picture. And, um, um, you know, she has her bare breast and she, yeah, I tell you, she, you know, Mary Strauss here in St. Louis has a number of photographs of her. 
And um, I got a hold of some of those photographs. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Catch this. Ernest Hemingway and a couple of his buddies went to her uh, restaurant bar one evening. <laughs> he, he said, you know, all of a sudden around one o'clock, out comes this bronze dancer. And he said, you know, she had skin like chocolate and legs like heaven. <laughs> this is almost a quote from Hemingway. So Hemingway, whether he became one of her lovers, I do not know, but he was absolutely infatuated with Josephine Baker. You know, she never had any children, but she was a, a lover and a confidant to a number of Americans. She married an Italian. Uh, who I think subsequently got cancer and he passed away. But when I did this bronze, um, you know, the bare breast, uh, the serape around the head, um, and that the, the, the hands behind on her hips. Um, and I have to tell your audience, behind on the hips there, I drew a champagne glass. <laughs> with little bubbles coming out of it, you know, because that was her life. She was, you know, she lived at night, and she was an amazing dancer. She spoke French. She spoke a number of languages. Um, and then she had the the, the tribe of children. Right. What was it, she like 12 or 13? Right. Yes. The rainbow tribe. Right. And when you see pictures of her with those Wonderful. children, um, a very, very different-looking woman. Yes, very different looking woman than yes. what you saw in terms of the woman who was the actress, the, stage, the dancer. The stage, the stage presence right. was very, very different. Right. She's right. always very kind of plain, yeah. very almost matronly looking. Yes. You know, she was in the resistance. Yes, yes. yes. And received uh, awards from yes, she did. France. She was given a state funeral. And uh, one of the stories about uh, that I like is she came stateside in the 70s. She's getting old now. She's in her 60s. She comes out on stage, and she has a skin-tight, sequenced dress with these voluminous feathers on her head. She comes out, and she gives a thistle a little bit, and she says to the audience, not bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody goes nuts. You know, here is this, here is this uh, amazing female. Um, it's not bad, huh? <laughs> you know, I didn't realize I mentioned this before we even started the show, was that she was at the Peace March yes. in Washington, D.C., and was next to Martin Luther King. And then you commented that you were there, too. I was there about 100 feet in front of uh, King. Um, and as I had said to you earlier, no one knew what was going to happen that day because there were literally thousands and thousands of people there. And all around the pool and in front of the Lincoln Monument, um, nothing happened. And it uh, was... It was a moment. I Nothing happened that, that was well, what they were anticipating. But yeah. different kinds of things happened historically. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it was quite a time. But she was she was the toughest bronze statue I have ever done. So how do you give her up, though? Oh, you I have because, because, oh, you haven't. Well, yeah, it's over at the university. Because I know artists many times, they want to know. It, you know it's so, things are so much a part here. of them. Yeah, I have the photograph here. Um, after I did her, I did a whole series of African women, and um, it's it's you know it's kind of an interesting 
the black-white thing in this country is so ironical and convoluted and complex. But I met this girl in Naples, Florida. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was there in Naples, uh, and uh, she came up in a, in a restaurant, and I looked at her, and she just had a presence. You know what I'm saying, Ellen? She had a presence about her. And she could tell that I was looking at her. And so I get up and I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artist, I'm a sculptor, and I would like to paint you. And she looked at me and she said, well, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a presence, huh? <laughs> and she, so I said, well, here's the deal. I, you know, I'm in a condominium over here. And um, first of all, she, you know, we didn't know each other, and we made a date to, to, to do some drawings the next day, and uh, she showed up, and I did photography of her, nude photography of her, drawings. I did several portraits of her and sent them to her, which she liked. She was a violinist at the Naples Philharmonic, uh, very cultured, and had very dainty feet, very, she was a, her bones were very fine, and she had this sort of aristocratic air about her that uh, I picked up on. And subsequently, during the, the years that we worked together, she says, you know, she said, you picked up on me, and I could tell that. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, uh, I like your cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, oh, I know you do. And she had an incredible profile. And I noticed the painting up here on your wall. I love profiles, and she had a great profile and very delicate hands and a very um, aristocratic way of handling herself. So, um. This is why this is <laughs> such fun for me, to sit down and you, you get the behind-the-scenes, I should say, behind-the-skin-and-brain yeah, yeah. thoughts, which, which leads me to you're involved <laughs> with a group called Creativity and Madness. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Because we started talking about that like about an hour and a half ago. Right. <laughs> when, you remember when he first got here. That's so why I wrote it down. I'm glad you remembered. It. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I can about it. I, I'm on their faculty. Uh, I have spoken to this group four or five times at various places around the world. And um, they are involved in examining the relationship between the unsettled or the psychopathology of of schizophrenia, bipolar situations, and the artist. Is there a relationship between creativity and the unsettled mind, or insanity? And so the, this organization is populated by neurophysicians, brain surgeons, um, MDs, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and I was told the last time I was with them that the reason why, and you know, they're listening to me, these kind of people are listening to me is a, is a wonder. But they, they said that there's very few artists that can articulate the mind of the artist. And that's why I've been invited to the group. Hmm. Um, because as a teacher, I was trained on how to present ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and you know that. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so I've given a number of presentations about what goes on in the intellect of, you know, the painter or the artist, this side of the, of the creation. What is that? And so, um, and, 
you know, I'm very blunt to tell you that I've had depression, and most of us have. Um, and I've, I've had mania, the, the manic part of the cycle. And they're intrigued, you know, the, the, the psychiatrists are intrigued with the manic part of the, the artist. Is that when you create? Right. Uh, can you create while you're on the down part of that cycle? You know, what part does the schizoid play or the, the bipolar play within your statue making? And I've been very open with them. Um, I'll be open with you that my conclusion is at this point in my life that yes, there is some sort of connection between the, the intellectual imbalance and creativity. Um, again, I have sat at the knee of some people and I've read some of their books like Sylvia Plath, like, um, uh, well, one of the great researchers in this area is uh, Kay Redfield Jameson, and she's schizophrenic, but she's also a psychiatrist, hmm. and she teaches and does her work at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And the genius of this woman is, first of all, she's very, very bright, very articulate, writes very well, but sadly, she goes into schizophrenia, bipolarism. She's experienced it. She never knows that she's going to come back. And um, so I've, I've read some of her books. One of, one of her books is called The Unsettled Mind. Another one is called, I think, um, uh, f uh, The Mind on Fire or something like that, where she tells what it's like to go into darkness. Mm. And I've heard her speak and um, talk to her. And when you look into her eyes, the Germans have a phrase, they look funny out of their eyes. You can look into her eyes and tell that she has been there. That time of darkness and that time of doubt, she's on the edge, she's at the abyss. She doesn't know whether she's gonna come back into normal life or not. Mm. And uh, so my group, this creative, we're we're very much involved in insanity, in madness, in the Van Goghs of our life. Um, and what's the impact upon creative people and uh, the problem of, uh, of madness? So you're talking artists, musicians, yeah, all of architects? And you know, the idea of suicide, poets lead the pack in suicides. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're at the top. Then you go into musicians, then you go into artists, and once you get down four or five in the, in the, in the list, um, suicide as such kind of disappears. But within the creative community, uh, it's lethal, particularly wow. poets. You know, and I always remember and reflect on when Robin Williams yes. committed suicide. And, yes. and again, he's a person that I can remember seeing from a very early age because I worked at the St. Francis Hotel Did you? when he was a mime, an unknown mime, uh -huh. across the street right at the park. Mm. And he was just so much better than everyone else. He just stood out. You know, so he wasn't just a quote-unquote a mime, but he was a true artist. Oh, yeah. He was a poet in his work, but also a very troubled man, you know, very funny. Everybody loved him. But there was this dark side to him that none of us ever saw. Yeah. 
That's why we were so shocked when he well, when he committed suicide. And that was an interesting statement. Is the creativity portion during the darkness side, or in the in the manic in the manic side, right? And I thought Williams when I saw Williams perform, it was always manic. Mm. And his mind was. Well, we, want, we want you to. Yeah. Have your mind stay tuned to ours on In Tune here. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been having a lively and engaging conversation with Bob Dick. And, who, I, and I will have to tell you one thing, Arnold. Remember how I used to tease you and say, I always had the best guest? <laughs> You have the best guest. Well, thank you, Ellen. I appreciate that. You really do. You guys. <laughs> we pat each other blush. on the back sometimes. We do. We right. have a good time interacting it's with each right. other and with our guests. Hey, you've been a lot of fun. And I know there was a little hesitancy on your part uh, a little bit. And I just said, hey, we're going to have a conversation in the living room. There you go. And I hope you think, you know, our living room's a little different. It's been a good time. Chairs aren't as, aren't as comfortable as the couch. Oh, but... what do you mean? <laughs> What are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> we were talking before the break about your involvement with creativity and madness and the issues that artists and musicians and poets and all kinds of artsy people have. Maybe they struggle with, maybe some don't mm-hmm. struggle as much with right, it. Right. And you mentioned uh, that there, and I looked up on the web here. There's a conference. They have a conference. They're creativityandmadness.com. By the way, your website is rhdick.com, rhdick.com, and he lives in, Bob does live in, in Kirkwood. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do, I do. Any, any other things you can kind of enlighten us about, about that creativity and madness? Because I'm going to move to the state next door up the okay. river right. before you go there. Uh, or after what, you go as, there. as a footnote, um, I gave a presentation to... Uh, this group about a year or so ago in Santa Fe. And um, I said, you know, I've done a lot of bad work and I've done a lot of just hack work, but every now and then uh, I hit it. And so I I told the the group, I said, I'm not so sure I can describe for you the juice or the zone that you go into when you do something that's halfway decent. And so I looked at the audience and I said, and the audience was about four to 500 people. And um, I told him, I'm gonna, say, I'm gonna say something to you now that I'm not so sure you're gonna understand, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this with you. Every now and then, I've done something, and this goes every now, every three or four, five, six, seven years, that I can't do. And they looked at me and I said, I've done I've done a few artworks that I don't think I did, and a couple hands went up and they said, "Well, what are you what are you saying?" And I'm saying I think it came from beyond, and I let that settle in for a second, and they said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "You talk to some serious artists, poets, musicians, and every now and then they do something." that they'll tell you if they're honest that it's beyond them and it comes from another source and um, I will leave that at that I don't know what that is I can't describe it 
Um, it's a feeling. It's a presence. It's a. Uh, it's a. Um, it's a. Uh, well, you see me struggle here somatically because I, I don't know what that is. Would I call it like you're in the zone? Everything yeah. is like all cylinders are clicking. Yeah. You're yeah. not. You know. You're getting great mileage right. per gallon. Yeah. And you're going. 300 miles an right, hour. Right, But you haven't left the driveway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you've left it and you've returned. <laughs> and you're yeah. just there. Yeah, everything is like it flows. Flow Flow would be a good word for that. Flows like I turned the, the, the river faucet or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's... Um, and so do you kind of recognize it once you have finished? You know, it's a... It's not... Now, whether this is in... Is this the insane part of the process? I, I don't know. But I know I was working with a muse. I had a muse. I think I told you that when you wrote the shop. Um, and we, we did a, a life-size life sculpture. And I was on all cylinders. I was, I was drinking beer and eating aspirin to stay at it. And she looked at me. This thing was done in seven days and seven nights. Go figure. And she looked at me. And I'm, I'm on my knees down here. And I said, I, I can't keep this up. I'm physically, I'm falling apart. And uh, she says, well, are you finished? And I said, I, I think I am, but I'm not really here with you. I just felt that there was an absence in me. And she says, well, if you think you're done, then I'm gone. And she left and I never saw her again. Hmm. And I guess I tell that story because there is a there is a, a mechanic at work here or a feeling or a sense that's going on between an artist and subject that when it's happening, when that, that feeling from beyond is occurring, um, you can't describe it. And I think science, science will never be able to uh, understand. Is this just between artist and a person or is it artist and a scene? It can be a still life. It can be a scene. It can be whatever. My experience was with the model, and that there was a pyramid. You know, the pyramid is a holy structure, geometrically. So you have the artist, and you have the model, and then you have whatever's being created. And the energy is going between all three points. And da Vinci was very much into that, the pyramid, mm -hmm. or the, the triangle. Mm -hmm. And um, I've experienced that, and it's, uh, it's a feeling that uh, is uh, really... Uh, it just kind of leaves you uh, pretty tired. That's very interesting. Yeah, you're really you're just worn out. I I mean, you sit there in your shop and you say, God, did I do that? And I've gone out in my shop every now and then, and I said, you know, I, how did I do this? I don't know. Hmm. Very interesting. Now this doesn't happen all the time. No, 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 no. Certain subjects kind yeah. of put you into that zone. Right. Right. Hmm. Now, have you been able to pinpoint a connectivity to it, or are they all different? Or It doesn't happen that often, so you okay. really can't get a hold of it and say, well, you know, what's going on here? But when it happens, you know it. And I've talked to other artists. I took a course with Ned Jacob. He's a magnificent, he's great with line and charcoal. And we talked about it, and he says, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he called it the flow. He called you juice, uh, where you you step out of yourself, and suddenly that which you are working with you know, it happens. It's just like Josephine Baker. When it, when that feeling decided, let's do this, man, it was like, it, it's all happened. It's like my hands work my hands. And um, 
You know, when you when you read the great Renaissance artists, uh, you know, with the Da Vinci's and the Michelangelo's and the Caravaggio's, they do things that are not of this world. You know, like Caravaggio was a murderer. The streets of Florence, I mean, he was a ruffian. And yet, look what he did with St. Sebastian. Look what he did with Jesus Christ. They're, they're, you know, and he died a violent life. Mm. So you wonder, how does a guy of this kind of, this violent life, make this kind of artwork? Well, you know, you're, you're left to think about this, and one of the conclusions, he didn't do it. It's coming from, quote-unquote, beyond. When you anyway. talk about your madness, though, your, what is that, the... Arnold, the creativity and creativity madness. in madness. There it is. Okay, that's right. That's what I was going to say. There, there it, is. it is. There it is. It's the balance, the balancing factor. You know, Simon Shama, when he did that PBS program, uh, "The Power of Art," that was, he teaches at Columbia University in New York, and he touches upon this when he got into Caravaggio and he got into, you know, Jackson Pollock and he got into uh, Picasso. That they're touching upon vibes that are really almost otherworldly, when they're really hitting it, when they're in that zone, they're, they're not here. They're a tool for something else. And I'm not a real you know, religious guy, but uh, I'll leave you with that. Interesting. Well, let's, let's, t- let's take you to Quincy, Illinois, because okay. we have about uh, uh, maybe 12 minutes here. Okay. And I was just really amazed when I when I read this and when I talked to you that there was a brewery named the Dick Brothers Brewery in Quincy, Quincy, Illinois, that was as large as Adolphus Bush's yes. brewery at the time, in right. the day, back in the day. Right. And you have some kind of relation I do. to them. Um, I didn't... This is all pretty recent stuff. Uh, it was in 1995 I began to realize that I was some sort of descendant here. Because my father is a, you know, Frederick Dickey's a German. They didn't talk much and all that kind of thing. So um, I had two aunts in uh, Quincy, to make a long story short, who were in their 90s. And I was their power of attorney. And uh, so I started to go to Quincy frequently to take care of them. One thing led to another, and I met a guy by the name of uh, Carl Landrum, who was a journalist there in, in uh, Quincy. And when I met Carl Landrum, who knew August Dick, the beer baron, he says, good God, Gus, did you come back from the grave? I says, what are you talking about? He says, you're a carp copy of this guy. And so one thing led to another, and I started to you know, look at pictures and photographs that he had. And, you know, there were some photographs when I was younger, and... and and August Dick was a young man and dark mustache and dark hair. Yeah. And so he said, uh, you know, I'm not going to embarrass you here, but uh, what's your connection to him? And I said, you know, you've caught me unawares here, Mr. Landrum. What are you, what are you saying? He says, you know, are you his bastard son? <laughs> and I said, I said, Carl, I, I, you know, I had two people raise me. I'm not sure what we're dealing with here. Uh, and that started really my interest in not only collecting the Bruviana, but also in doing the research on the, on this uh, part of the clan. So, and, are are you related? Um, I'm not a genealogist, but I'm going to tell you that I am only because I can show you photos. <laughs> oh 
holy cow, we are uh, really uh, very much alike physically. But yeah, you are. There's there's DNA, and I found out when I was researching this guy <coughs> that um, you know he was bicultural. He spoke uh, German and. He had one foot in, in German Europe, and he had the other foot here in America, and he spoke English, obviously. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary fellow. Um, in fact, I just wrote an article that he was maybe the archetype of a very early CEO. And uh, this business there in Quincy uh, may be uh, an example of the origins of the American corporation. Um, and, uh, in fact, I'm almost positive that his methods of management, uh, how they groomed the business, how they included the worker, uh, is very remindful of Bill Gates, Stephen Jobs, of uh, a number of American CEOs. I know. He was doing it in 1910. Yeah, you mentioned he paid his workers well. They'd have picnics. They were proud of the company that they worked he for. He used the photo as a, as a management tool. Right, right. And, uh, and so, you know, when, when Southwest Airlines uses their employees in their commercials, he was doing the very same thing 75, 80 years ago. Right. And so he hasn't received his due because Quincy's in the provinces. We're not New York. We're not Boston. We're not Philadelphia. And so what I've tried to do with uh, my uh, goings-on with Quincy, and I'm, I'm there now frequently— is to try to rectify the fact that uh, here in Quincy, Illinois, um, was a business, an ongoing empire that is an example to modern CEOs and chairmen on how to run a corporation. Now, tell the listeners about how broadly uh, this beer was shipped. Well, uh, they had offices in Chicago. Uh, they had distributorships from Canada to Mexico City. Uh, to Kansas City, they sold beer in most North American cities. And, um, uh, you know, in my research, I was just amazed by um, how much beer they were producing, 150,000 barrels per year, where one barrel was 30 gallons of beer. And um, our uh, brewmaster, and the brewmaster of the Bush people here in St. Louis were in cahoots. Uh, I, I have some letters, and there are some letters in Quincy, of these true brewmasters. They're in German, and they're comparing notes on how to make beer. <laughs> and you know what's also so interesting crazy. is that his first name was August Dick, right. and then you have August Bush. Bush. Right. They're all German. And I tell you, but, but even just that name, yeah. you know, of August, yeah. between two men that were doing the exact same type of thing, and now to hear that the brewmasters were collaborating. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. They were getting ready to come to St. Louis. He had a stroke in 1938, uh, August Reb and Dick did. Um, and that kind of, that began the downfall of the business. Uh, by 1943, he was really sick, and he passes away in 1943. Then the business struggles for a while, and it went out of business in 1951. Um, and there was a, a liquidation firm from Chicago who did the liquidating. And um, Beautiful beer bottle, though. That's yeah. a yes. lovely. Yes. I mean, it, it, it itself is like a work of art. Well, I'm glad you said that because he was very much into uh, art. 
Oh, and much you could tell. of his much of his German uh, communications were was with Vienna, Austria, and Gustav Klimt, and the Lady in Gold. Mm-hmm. He was very into using art as an advertisement. Smart. And that was an early. Here's another. Yeah. That is a good picture of his. Um, and so, brewery. what he does for the modern CEO is he laid the groundwork for using art to sell your product. Right, to trays. Yep. You know, the, the, the whole. Steins. Right. And I noticed that uh, when I, so. I went to the website, the building is still, the warehouse oh, or yeah. the oh, plant is still there, and it's being revitalized Correct. now in downtown Quincy as Correct. a variety of things, which is like, I'm sure there's. There's a museum there now, too. Okay. Yeah. Shops and things. So it's, it's, I'm glad to see that the building was not torn down and right. you know, we lost that portion of history. And it, it, when I was reading your book, how he had that Thank built. Thank you for reading my book. <laughs> it, it was some, there were some great kinds of, like, he really wanted to make sure this was, like, this was the German strong. Yeah. And we were showing you our architecture. And right. uh, he was very emphatic in how he wanted things. Right. And even the, the, I was looking at the trademark um, the brand mark there, and it looks like a crest. Yes. It looks like a family crest. Right, right. So, I mean, there's a strength in everything that you see when you look at the bottle, when you look at the labeling. Um, it does. It comes Artistic. across as very artsy. Yeah. Very, right. very artsy. So uh, tell our listeners, uh, Ellie, the name of that book. This one is called Beer Baron, August Redmond Dick and the Dick Brothers Brewery, an essay. And has a beautiful stein on the front. And uh, again, just a beautifully put together book. Absolutely beautifully uh, designed. Uh, the printing, the the photographs inside. You know, you would definitely want to read the book as well as look at the photographs. Right it's now, not, I'm sold out. You're, you're sold out. I'm huh? Sold out. Yeah. I can believe that. But beautifully done books. And you said this was oh yeah by Monograph Publishing. Correct. They are to be commended for these books. These are absolutely fabulous works. I think if you want to order a book, you'll probably have to contact Monograph Publishing. Um, Ellie and uh, Ellie Jones is uh, one of the ladies there who's helped me a lot. She's she does very good work in editing, and um, so anyway, on the front there, there is something I might mention to your audience. On that Stein, you see the the woman on the Stein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is called the emerging woman. And the emerging woman was something that Gustav Klimt and Goleman Moser uh, were developing in Vienna, Austria around 1910, 1912. And the idea was that this, this uh, woman is coming out of the beyond. And she's inviting the drinker, the beer drinker, to... Uh, to have more. To have more and to forget about your day's work and uh, have our beer. <laughs> so... And you have your your personal uh, uh, Dick Beer steins and yeah, I collected uh, stuff like that. That's yeah. all. That's all pictured in there. Yeah, yeah that was that was very very I interesting. Yeah, I own those things. Bob, it's been great having you on the show here. Thank you. It's been fun. I enjoyed it. We we appreciate. We've been talking to Bob Dick here about what's been going on in his life, as it is his birthday today, and we wanted to uh, wish I you again a happy it. birthday. I made 76. Yes, you did. And I tell you, what a miraculous and just... Water under the bridge there. Riotous. (laughs) Riotous 76. Uh, 
I have my share of wounds and scars and all of that, but uh, we all do. But you you have made use of them. That they are part of who you are. But we're thankful that you came on in tune today. Thank you. Great show. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Great show. You two are great. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. it.